I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Oh, wait. <laughs> hey, my trumpet fanfare sounds more lame than yours. <laughs> yeah, I get the uh, aluminum metal for that one. Um, one of my favorite stories, I don't know if it's true, it's an urban legend that some uh, social workers found some kids abandoned in a trailer in uh, West Virginia. West Virginia is always the butt of these kind of jokes. And uh, the kids were speaking some language that they didn't know. And they didn't know who taught them. And then they took them into the you know protective custody until they found somebody who worked in their office was a Trekkie. And these kids were speaking Klingon to each other. Now that the parents oh, had wow. only taught them Klingon, you know, Star Trek language of uh, the Klingon alien race. And uh, interesting enough, I mean, people have made a dictionary of Klingon. Someone has even translated the mass into Klingon. Wait, does it sound a joke? I was waiting for the punchline. No, it's not a time. joke. It's a, it's like an urban legend that this happened. I don't know that. It's oh, okay. Well, well, I know, I know people go to a certain college in Kansas who are reported to, uh, they know, um, what is it? Elfin or something? What's the Lord of the Rings language? The Hobbit? Hobbit language? Yeah. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. I don't know that. But no. Hey. Well, you wouldn't, if you hear language here, you don't recognize it might be that, but okay. yeah, same, but still same type of thing. Right. So these yeah. are kind of artificial languages, but somehow they, they get going. I, I heard recently what the, the linguistic miracle it was that Israel actually revived Hebrew. I mean, that was pretty much a liturgical language, more or less a dead language until the state of Israel came by. And then they, they decided, even though none of them were from Israel, I mean, they came from Germany and other places. They gave up their first language and made Hebrew the language of Israel until it hmm. became a living language again. It's very interesting how that wow. how that happens. So we're, you know, we're talking about Liturgium Authenticum again, right? The document on how to translate the third edition of the Missal, which is the book we use now at Mass. In fact, the, the first point, I think, too, is uh, in, in the document after the introductory stuff is the choice of languages to be translated. And that you can't just translate any of these languages, Hobbit or Elfin or uh, uh, or what did you say? What was your example, Dennis? Klingon. Klingon. Yeah, Klingon, yeah. I think they talk about Doc artificial Rackett? language. Are, they even, do you, do, are you familiar with, the, is it called Esperanto? Esperanto, yeah. What is, what is that? That was an attempt a while back by Europeans to create a perfectly regular international language for all the countries of Europe. Huh. And it was going to have, you know, completely regular verb conjugations, no irregular things, you know, so it wouldn't have these inheritances from other languages. It's kind of like the metric system for language. Well, kind of, yeah. It was supposed to be easier for everybody to learn, but nobody Or the euro. Nobody wanted it, and it just didn't really Uh, take off. So, uh, man, I could really go for a euro right now. Mm. Meatball euro. (laughs) Whenever we have... Whenever we have euros in the cafeteria for lunch, I uh, I go up to a, just a random seminary and I'll say, "Hey, what do you think the uh, the uh, rate the transaction rate for these euros are?" <laughs> so they just give me like a roll, eye roll, and it's worth it yeah, all the time. Yeah, yeah uh, you just spread joy around, don't you, Jesse? Mm. 
So this document is saying, all right, we can't translate everything. So we're going to start with languages that are actually living, used by lots of people that are actually, you know, principal languages of a country. They make a distinction between languages and dialects, too, because one country could have a dozen or half dozen dialects. And so they're trying to say, first, get the major languages that are actually used. And they also don't want the number of liturgical languages to be increased too greatly. That's what it says in paragraph 12, not just because it's a lot of time and effort from very few people, but that the unity of the language, liturgical language, to actually foster the unity of the people within a particular nation. And so, again, liturgy as the unified action of the members of the mystical body, increasing their unity by praying uh, the same way. And so um, they actually say in paragraph 13 that if there's a bunch of people in, in the same room with different dialects, you can actually use Latin as the unifying language. Isn't that interesting? The document about translation from Latin says, well, you have too many dialects. You can use Latin as the you know, way it, to unify everybody. It reminds me of some of those um, music documents, Dennis, and Paul VI would say, you know, every Catholic around the world should be able to sing, you know, the ordinary of the mass, for example, in Latin, because if you have groups that come together who speak different languages, they can at least participate as mm-hmm. a common voice in Latin. So mm-hmm. it's, this document's consistent here. And that was one of the arguments about avoiding vernacular translations or keeping Latin uh, in the 40s and 50s, when it, was, it fostered the universality of the church. Now, it also fostered a lot of people not knowing a lot of things, <laughs> but like orations and changeable parts of the mass. And that's always the choice. You make this point, Chris, all the time. Unity and diversity are always in this balance. Unity and, and the localities are always trying to, to uh, do their waltz to figure out who's, who's going to lead, right? But then it starts getting into some juicy, meaty stuff here. If you love liturgy, and I guess anybody who listens to this podcast probably does, it's a little hard to remember now, you know, 10 years out or more. Boy, people were ready to go at each other's throats about these word choices, word choices, and uh, that it would be too complicated or people wouldn't understand it or that it was cultural imperialism of a particular brand of liturgical uh, theology. Um, and so they give these principles applicable to all translations. This is paragraphs 19 and mm-hmm. forward. So there's, I love that first sentence, Chris, but I'll hand it on to you. Yeah. Yeah. This is it. really, this is getting into the meat of it here. So number 19 says, so, and so this is under, uh, this is where the document begins as general principles applicable to every kind of translation. And it says the words of sacred scripture, as well as other words spoken in the liturgy, especially in the celebration of the sacraments are not intended primarily to be a sort of mirror of the interior dispositions of the faithful. (laughs) (laughs) Rather, wait, 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 wait. Okay. It's not supposed to mirror our interior feelings. The liturgy isn't projected out of us to make it say what we feel. Well, at least not primarily. Ah, okay. Well, what does it have to do? Okay. Rather, they express truths that transcend the limits of time and space. Wow. You were going to impose your objective reality on my subjective experience, Chris? Yeah. Well, uh, yes. Uh, Rather, we should put it this way. I'm not, but God is. Oh, thank you. Because God is this objective, transcendent truth and reality, and he is the content of liturgical language. You know, as we said in earlier podcasts, uh, the second person of the Trinity isn't only son, but he is a logos. He is a word. That's the, the standard and the content, the reality of every sacramental uh, word is the logos. And it That's seems what to me, 
translator should be held to at least the same standard as your brain surgeon or your personal trainer, right? If your personal trainer doesn't know that lift heavy things in the proper form gives you muscles or your surgeon doesn't know that, you know, a brain comes together in a certain way. Oh yeah, I'm going to, my brain surgery is based on my interior dispositions at the moment when your skull is cut open. Like, no, no, no. There's an objective reality. Our job is to work within and through that reality. Somehow liturgy seems to be in many people's minds, or at least back then more uh, subject to subjectivity in a much greater way than the scientific field, medical you know, things. You know, Dennis, the more, the more I'm a liturgist, the more this uh, truth comes home uh, yeah. that, that comes to us from uh, Gardini about uh, uh, the style of the liturgy and the style of devotions. And, you know, in it's the style of devotions where language can and should reflect your your own personal interior desires, needs, and sentiments. Dear Lord, it, Jesse is driving me crazy. Please give me the patience I need to survive time with Jesse. What that's, that's never going to be in the in the missile, right? But boy, is it a prayer I use a lot. And you know, and you know what? You could even pray that prayer to God in Klingon. You could. could, yeah, you, you could, but that's one of the differences about devotions and private prayers and liturgy and liturgical prayer is its objective content. Energy yeah, seems rare pay. <laughs> you want to? This is not to say that you know our, anything goes with devotions. I mean, God is still the standard, but it, it invites uh, this this more of a subjective, individualized, personal type of expression, whereas things liturgical are you know, vehicles of objective transcendent truth, especially yes. language. This makes me think that the language as a bridge to God is built by God. Yes. Not, not individually, like we're all building our own bridge to God. And so instead we're all on that one bridge. What we do on that bridge, that's where the personal connection is, how we cross that bridge, <laughs> when we cross it, to what degree, but that we are all on that one bridge built by God, mm -hmm. I think, is what's important. And it's proportional you know, to us, right? So there's a local quality, too. Do you know, uh, I think this was in the Office of Readings from St. Augustine sometime during the Easter season, where St. Augustine has this line, let us recognize our voice in his and his voice in ours. So in other words, uh, you know, the three of us or the seven billion of us uh, on the planet, um, the standard for everyone is the logos, the voice of the father, the word of the father. Yet each of us, seven billion people uh, should will sound different, yeah. you know, according to our own, um, you know, our little logoi, our little particular little words, Mi micro logoi. That's right. Ooh, micro logoi. Sounds like a disease. But I, don't, <laughs> I don't have that disease. So. I had that at summer camp once. Oh. It's hard to get rid of. Yeah. But why? Why, why, why? Okay, so, you know, outside of space and time, great. What does paragraph 19 say? By means of these words, these really important words, God speaks continually with the spouse of his beloved. That's us. That's the church. And the Holy Spirit leads us back uh, to dwell with the persons of the Trinity. And the church is in charge of, of what it says, perpetuating and transmitting all that she is, all that she believes, and uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Boy, word choice, important, important stuff. At least as important as your personal trainer. Hmm. All right, so there's a principle. Here's another one at number 20. Can we go to that one, Dennis? Sure. The Latin liturgical texts of the Roman Rite, 
So these are the Latin texts. While drawing on centuries of ecclesial experience in transmitting the faith of the church received from the fathers are themselves the fruit of the liturgical renewal just recently brought forth by the Second Vatican. Okay, you know the sound I like to make in moments like this? That's my head exploding again. Oh, I thought it was going to be... No, that's an announcement noise. This is the, like, something really amazing. Because we think, oh, Latin, that's all that pre-Vatican II stuff, and that's over, and we translate it to English and get rid of that past point. They're making the point that the Missal, the Latin typical edition, is the Missal of the Second Vatican Council. There are new prayers composed. There are new collects. There's all kinds of new stuff that were uh, inserted into the Missal. Those are the fruit of liturgical renewal, even in their Latin. And so the job is not just translating the oldest stuff, but the newest stuff. It says uh, the rich patrimony is preserved. Um, But from the beginning, the translation is not a work of creative innovation as it is of rendering the original text faithfully and accurately into the vernacular language. Okay, really important. It's not creative innovation, but handing on the traditio, the giving forward to the next generation. Yeah, you know, as we said in the other podcasts, you know, it's the church has been working on this missile, uh, its rights, its language, you know, for all of her life, for for more than millennia. I mean, especially since it reaches back into the into the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. I mean, the church has been at this business of how to speak to God and listen to God and uh, recognize each other's voice in the other for so long. And to to disregard that because uh, we want to be creative or something is uh, we we only do that at our own peril. You know, to think that, uh, you know, that we can say it better than uh, St. Augustine or St. Thomas Aquinas or John Henry Cardinal Newman or Paul, Paul you know, whatever it is. Um, Boy, you only do that at your own risk. How uh, how many years are in a score, as in four score and seven years ago? Is it 12? I don't know. I don't translate for me. I don't know the translation. I thought, I thought it was I 20. As far as 10 years. But four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth a new nation. Right? It's the Gettysburg Address. But there's the problem, right? If you change it to a, like some number, whatever it is, it's like, oh, yeah, 49 years ago, our forefathers, what, okay. Oh, that's interesting. But four score and seven is poetic, even though it diminishes the immediate sense of clarity. You would kind of look it up and say, what does that mean? So are we uh, interfering with 20 years, by the way? 20 so years? I had to look it up. Okay, so four score and seven is 87 years. 87 years ago, you know, they signed the Constitution, whatever, or four score and seven, poetic. So in a sense, that meaning is veiled, but it also intrigues us at the same time and it rolls off the tongue. I don't really know any other first line of any other address by Abraham Lincoln, but I know four score and seven years ago, or there's something about it. Kind of along that same score. Anyway. Oh, right. go, to number, go, to number, go to number 25, though. See, but listen to this. It says, um, so that the content of the original texts may be evident and comprehensible, even to the faithful who lack any specialized intellectual formation. Right. As we've just demonstrated, the <laughs> translations should be characterized by a kind of language which is easily understandable, yet which at the same time preserves the text's dignity, beauty, and doctrinal precision. That is a hard thing to do. That's the million. That's the rub right there. That's that's the hard thing, right? So, yeah, how do you right? So, language. The first principle is language reflects divine truths, but how do these divine truths get 
audibleized and communicated to finite and fallen human ears in a beautiful and full and comprehensive way um, such that we could hear them and be and comprehend them, understand them, be changed by them. That's really difficult. Have either of you ever had, did you ever have one of those moments where you would go to mass and it's kind of the, the bland first translation. And then you find an old book from the 19th century full of prayers and it's, Oh father, thou art beyond our majesty. And you're like, Oh, I never thought I got that way. Maybe you not consciously recognize it, but you see how the language choice, what level of formality and the words that are chosen. It, it's in the reading those that you learn how important the person you're talking to is. Hey, Jesse, you idiot, get up. Right. Okay. Well, what have I just told the world about Jesse? But, you know, hey, that we're friends hey, and you're being sarcastic. Hey, Jesse, thou who hadst created me from nothing out of the perfect who love no brain. of thy divine heart. Well, wow. All of a sudden I've decided you're really important. And so, and you know, yeah, go ahead, Chris. Well, it, what, what you're, we used to, we used to call this in our presentations, linguistic registered. Register, yeah. Yeah. And, and so what you're describing here, Dennis, isn't necessarily a sacramental or liturgical or theological or ecclesial principle. It's more of a human principle that that uh, your hearer determines the register you're going to use. And if you're going to talk to President Minnis, um, you're not going to do all that cursing like you usually yeah. do. Well, yeah, I have uh, to kneel in his presence. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if you talk to, uh, if you talk to Jesse, you talk in one way, you talk to uh, your mother, you talk in another, you talk to your students, right? You, you, uh, you use a certain choice of language. So yeah, this register should inform liturgical translations because in Almost all cases with the missile, we're speaking to God the Father. And so it should be at a particularly elevated register. It shouldn't be man on the street type of uh, language because we're not talking to a man on the street. We're talking to talking to God. So there's a great sentence that continues there in paragraph 25. How excited for you, for this are you, Jesse? So excited. <laughs> I was going to, I want to, I think your you register is a question. little low there, Jesse. You asked us a question. I wanted to answer it and you never got, gave us the opportunity to. What's the question? Where you said, have you, oh, been, you have a moment like that? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I find that most when I, when there's like an older hymn that I'm singing and just the way the text is written in some of those, like in some of the stuff Aquinas wrote or anything that's been turned into a song, the, the language in it just, it's elevated for sure. Right. And you do that when you're doing something important. That's just how it works from clothes, you know, wedding, you dress differently on a wedding day than some other day. And it's just, it speaks and, and reveals knowledge of the inner logic of things. So listen to 25. The second part is follows from what Chris was just reading by means of words of praise and adoration that foster reverence and gratitude in the face of God's majesty, his power, his mercy, and his transcendent nature. The translations will respond to the hunger and thirst for the living God that is experienced by the people of our own time, while also contributing to the dignity of the liturgical celebration. Okay, so it's not just, oh, people, you got to do this because God's a big meanie, and if you don't grovel, you're, you're just a little worm before him. It's, this is the desire of our hearts to recognize God's majesty, because if God's not God, pardon the French, but we're screwed, right? If he's not majestic beyond all space and time, he can't rescue us. He can't save us. He's, if he's just another creature, you know, big deal. The fact that he's God means that he can invite us into his own majestic existence. And we need to know that in order to know what we're doing. We need to turn it up to 11. <laughs> turn it up to infinity, baby. How about uh, number 27? How about it? How about it? 
Here's another principle. Even if expressions should be avoided which hinder comprehension because of their excessively unusual or awkward nature. A.K.A. Jesse. I you going to take four score and seven. Uh, the liturgical text should be considered as the voice of the church at prayer rather than of only particular congregations or individuals. Mm-hmm. Hence, consubstantial. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the um, they're first and foremost the, the voice of the collective church at prayer before they are of any one particular person. Many years ago, now Father Matt Fish, but he was just a mere, mere layperson like me back then, invited me to uh, a life teen mass out in Washington State. I think they improvised pretty much every single word except for the words of con- uh, consecration. And all I did was watch them because they had this second set of prayers that they would say – and the father would say, I love you, children. Maybe we love you, Father. And it's like, well, I don't know him, so I'm not, I, don't, I can't answer. And it, I became a spectator because it was so local that I was not part of the club. And I was excluded from the unity of the Roman Rite in that day. Now, they felt included because it was their little club. But any visitors were, were watching rather than participating. Is that when you are a fisher of fish? Well, yeah, he was trying to. I don't know. He's trying to irritate me or something. But <laughs> take that, Matt Fish in Washington D.C. If you want to irritate Dennis, it does not take very much at can all. You, I know from can either of you name two kinds of foods that I hate? Fish, yes, and more fish. And fish is one, and and uh, oh oh Miracle Whip. Oh well, yeah, that's pretty gross too. But because of my super taster thing, I I can't handle a lot of Mexican flavors. So Father Matt Fish took me to lunch. To a place called Taco Del Mar, if you know what that means in Spanish. Fish, Fish taco. Of the sea. taco of the sea. Not only was it Mexican, it was also seafood at the same time. So, And he made me do life team. So, Father Fish, I hope you've repented. He didn't know you were a good translator. I guess not. Taco Del Mar, baby. Hmm. Should we go another one? Well, 27 says a couple of other things, right? So, you don't want to hinder uh, comprehension. On the other hand... Uh, they should be different from usual and everyday speech. The texts become memorable and capable of expressing heavenly reality. So there's an interesting thing there, right? You want people to know what you're saying, but suddenly the words become unusual and it draws your attention. It's like, oh, I don't talk like that every day. So there must be something, as it says here in 27, about how they express the heavenly uh, reality. So they say, you know, every vernacular has a sacred style. That's what we're talking about in the register. <clears throat> um, that's proper to liturgical language. So, Increased legibility, understanding of the average person in the street, does not mean watering down this kind of sacral character. And it says, uh, where there are in, seemingly inelegant words or expressions, a hasty tendency to sanitize this characteristic is likewise to be avoided. So sometimes words are weird. And when they're weird, we kind of wake up and say, I don't know what that means. And it, it, it makes us realize we're doing something different than our everyday stuff. And consubstantial is one of those words. What are some other examples? You know? um, I don't know. It's funny when you think about it. We, they become kind of liturgically natural to us that it's hard to think of a strange one. Yeah. 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 That's probably the best one, though. Consubstantial. Which is a very complicated word. Where they used to say one in being, I think, in the old translation. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so one in being, nobody knows what that means. Consubstantial of one substance, right? Together as one substance. That is such a precise theological idea. How do you capture all that in one um, word? In Latin, they had consubstantialem patri, right? Consubstantial with the Father. And so, I don't know what that means really, but then you start to do a little etymology, break the word down, and you can learn 
precisely by it being weird. Well, what does what does that mean? Yeah. No, we, uh, there there is a section on on maintaining certain vocabulary, and, but you remember this is from uh, Homoousius and Homoousius uh, in the one Greek. iotas of a difference. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so when you go back to is this Council of Nicaea stuff, Homoousius, mm, the iota controversy, Council of a long time ago. Council a long time ago. But I mean, you think about it, people died over an iota. They died over a letter. They died over a word. And that, uh, you know, this is a pretty significant word that we're talking about. Well, maybe not everybody knows what that you know, iota thing. Iota is a letter, lowercase letter I in Greek, right, Chris? Yeah. And uh, uh, homo uh, means uh, what? Same. And homoi oh. means similar or like, I suppose. And usius means a being. And so the question of the Council of Nicaea I wasn't expecting to talk about this today. I would have brushed up a little bit. Yeah. Is, is the son similar to the father or, or the is, is the same of the father? Right. And so uh, he's, in, he's the same. He's homo usius. He's con substantial with the father. Right. He's not just like the father, similar to the father. Um, he's of the same stu- substance and being of the father. And so th- this was a huge, th- this is about uh, is, is Jesus God or not? This is a pretty, mm-hmm. Pretty key. If somebody thing. gets that, if somebody gets that wrong, and I'm talking to them, I just shake my fist in the air and I say, "Why iota?" Oh man. Well, you know, the other side of the side of the iota question is, well, is God man or not, or is he in the appearance of men? So many people were trying to deal with the gender question of and became man in the creed. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to say became human or became fully human or became a person. But then person means something like the three persons of the Trinity. So he was already a person before he became human. And so becoming a person doesn't necessarily make him incarnate as a human being. And, um, and so the, this precision of, of theological ideas don't, doesn't always go with the notion of the politically correct movements of our own time. Mm-hmm. I think in Latin, there's two words for man, right? Homo and vir. And homo mm-hmm. means like human, like in the sense of being a member of mankind, where vir means specifically male, like a virile mm-hmm. person. And so the Latin word was homo. We don't have a word in English that corresponds to that. People were, were hearing it as if it were vir, but in Latin it was homo. So it's just one of these very, you know, again, very complicated things. Yeah. yeah. But it matters. It, it matters if you're making theological claims and putting theological words on your lips. All right, guys. Or did you want to do another paragraph here? I think there's enough to do another uh, episode. Oh, yeah. We got lots. Okay. So should we answer our liturgy question? Will it make an iota's worth of difference? (laughs) I think it will. Okay, let's do it. Agreed. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Hey, Chris. Hey, Jesse. Can you ask Dennis if, can oh, you ask hey. Dennis if he has a question for me? Because I'm not talking to him right now. 
Dennis, could you please ask Jesse a question? Chris, could you please answer my question to Jesse? Because I'm not talking to him right now. <laughs> and the question I, is, do we have a question? Jesse, Dennis wants to know, do we have a question? <laughs> Tell Dennis that we do have a question. <laughs> Dennis, right, we have a question. Right, right. Chris, what did Jesse say? <laughs> I want to know what the question Tell Jesse that I want to know what the question is. I muted, I muted his mic, so he will not get to hear the question. Uh, Chris loves to be in the middle. I know it's one of his favorite things. Hey, Dennis, we have a question from Rediger this week. Rediger! Rediger says, Hello, liturgy guys. Hello, Rediger. I've really enjoyed your recent podcast on Liturgiam Authenticum. I'm wondering if that document is still being used to help translate current liturgical rites. Hmm. Uh, the answer is yes, but... Uh, <laughs> that's yeah. always the answer yeah uh, it is yeah it's it's the uh, document and what it contains are the principles of translation uh, still being used today and so I think some of the books that are presently being used uh, excuse me some of the rights that are presently being translated into English uh, include the uh, RCIA book the liturgy the hours book those are I think what the bishops are working on now uh, let's see, they just translated and promulgated in English the second edition of the baptismal rite. Also uh, marriage, right? They yeah, marriages it. recently. Anything yeah. that said with and also with you has become and with your spirit, no matter what it is. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Liturgiam Authenticam has been used to translate all of those books. Now, the, the but is, uh, is this, is I think that... Uh, and I don't know if this came up in the podcast or not. If it hasn't, we should we should address it maybe in these terms, Dennis, is that, you know, there used to be this when when the books were translated according to Comme le Prévois. Is that how mm -hmm. you say it, Dennis? Comme le Prévois. It's more of a, uh, a what they call a dynamic equivalence where the um, uh, the less of the the latinate quality of the text was maintained and it it was more of an emphasis on the receiver language versus liturgiam authenticam emphasized more of a what they would call a formal equivalence where there's a, a stronger if not stronger at least a strong emphasis on the latin base text and so in what we say now in, in the missal for example uh it still has that kind of latin flavor so i think there's been a little bit of a mediation a little bit of a shift in some of the translations into english so if if the missal still seems to sound you know some would say you know uh kind of thickly latin or clumsy almost uh some of the later uh, or the subsequent translations into English have been, that's been softened a little bit, so it's still uh, very formal, but it seems to to respect the the English language a little bit more. So the tenor of the translations has changed a little bit, and then the second thing that's different now is uh, you remember this document uh, is a motu proprio called called Manum Principium, yes, where it said that uh, it was the bishop's responsibility to approve languages. Uh, and the Holy See was just to confirm what they have already approved. Now, Liturgiam Authenticam didn't say that. Liturgiam Authenticam says that um, the bishops are to submit translations to the Holy See, and they give it the uh, the recognitio, I think. They're the ones who do the approving. So that's changed, too. Some of the procedural things have changed. But I think the answer, on the whole, is absolutely. Liturgiam Authenticam and the principles it has is still the guiding document for translations. 
All right, Rudiger, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet Dennis at DMAC Super Taster. Parentheses, taste more than you. More than you do. Or you could buy Chris's new book, Principles of Sacred Liturgy, write a handwritten note in it, return it to LTP with a message saying, get this to Chris Carson's, and then he might actually get your question. Oh, I definitely mm-hmm. would if you did that. That's a JW original, so that was not nice. a user submitted one. So <laughs> if you like it, that's me. Thanks, Jesse. <laughs> All right. Thank you, and God bless. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoramus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College.